0: Okay, a very, very warm welcome everyone to this talk in the 141st session of the Aristotelian Society. It's a great pleasure for me to introduce our speaker this evening, who is Corinne Besson from the University of Sussex. Corinne works on philosophy of logic, epistemology, philosophy of language, and the history of analytic philosophy. She's just finished a book for OUP provisionally entitled Logic, Reasoning and Regressors*, a defense of logical cognitivism, and is currently working on the relation between logic and reasoning. And her talk today is entitled Knowing How to Reason Deductively. Corinne has a handout which I think should be posted in the chat and it will be posted again um, in a few minutes for people who join a little late Um, and she also will uh, share a PowerPoint on screen, we expect the talk to be about 50 minutes. Then, as we normally do, we'll take a five minute break for people to collect their thoughts and then I'll field questions. um, If you could raise your hand uh, in the reactions uh, button of your uh, of your Zoom. And then that enables me to take questions in the order in which they come up. But without further ado, over to Corinne.
1: Thank you uh, very much. uh... Bill, thank you for uh, inviting me. I'm really um, delighted to be here. Um, So when I got the invitation, I immediately decided to present some of my work on Ryle on knowing how, uh, since he first introduced us to uh, uh, his distinction between knowing how and knowing that in his 1945 uh, Aristotelian Society paper, entitled Knowing How and Knowing That. So I thought it would be a a fitting occasion and a kind of good tribute to make to uh, Ryle's very inspiring uh, work. Okay, so today I will specifically be concerned with the application of knowing how to logical uh, knowledge, which is one of Ryle's paradigmatic examples uh, of knowing how. Uh, So, as Bill said, there is a handout uh, that uh, uh, is in the chat. Um, So, um, not all of the PowerPoint is on the handout and uh, when something that is on the PowerPoint is on the handout, uh, I'll make it clear to you so that you know when to uh, look uh, at it. Okay, Uh, so let's start. Um, So, it's widely accepted that at least some aspect of logical knowledge is a uh, knowledge how. Um, for instance, or in particular, those who have um, uh, uh, a capacity for logical or deductive reasoning but lack explicit recognition of logical rules can be said to possess knowledge how of these rules. Um, one way to put this kind of view is for instance, offered by a Crispin Wright, uh, in a rec- recent paper, uh, he says, uh, any rational subject knows a lot of logic, but for those who have not taken courses in logic or otherwise thought about it, this knowledge is for the most part practical knowledge. It is Rylean knowledge, how? What Crispin Wright is suggesting here is a kind of two-tier picture whereby unreflective, knowledge of logic is rather knowing how or knowledge how and uh, more sophisticated uh, or expert uh, knowledge gained through training or reflection is uh, theoretical. Uh, it's not practical. And perhaps it is a kind of knowledge that, or a kind of uh, propositional uh, knowledge. Now this kind of two tier picture seems um, very plausible. Sorry, I need you. Um, uh, And indeed, um, it seems to be uh, supported by a a strong argument. Uh, Let me just sketch two familiar reasons that people give in favour of the two-tier picture. Um, one is that uh, ordinary reasoners surely cannot be credited with explicit or uh, propositional knowledge of logical rules. Uh, this would require implausible uh, conceptual sophistication on their part. So if you think that you know, most people have some kind of logical competence, surely this cannot be Uh, because they have explicit recognition uh, of logical rules. And another reason uh, that is very familiar to uh, epistemologists of logic uh, is that if all aspects of logical knowledge were explicit or propositional, this would lead to Carroll's uh, regress. So Carroll's regress or so-called Carroll's regress is a regress argument offered by uh, Lewis Carroll in his uh, 1895, a paper published in MIND uh, entitled What the Tortoise Said to Achilles. And in this paper, he suggests through a regress that uh, elementary uh, deductive uh, reasoning is impossible. Um, I'm going to talk more about the regress later and I'll tell you how it runs. Um, So in this talk, I am in fact going to focus uh, on curve regress so i'm not going to focus so much on the issue of conceptual sophistication uh, that all reasoners cannot have explicit knowledge of logical rules and i'm not actually being going to be too concerned with uh the two-tier picture and how it exactly works i really want to focus uh on uh the the carol regress a bit and the reason uh, for this is that um carl's regress is the central reason given by ryle for articulating knowledge of logical rules as knowledge how in the first instance, uh, to articulate the kind of competence with logical rules that does not require explicit recognition of uh, the rule. And epistemologists of logic tend to accept Ralph's view that Carr's regress requires part of logical competence to be knowledge how, or at any rate, that it requires such competence to have a non-explicit or non-propositional element. So um, and the connection between knowing how and courage regress have, has, has been very strong uh, for epistemologists of logic. Okay, so here is here's what I want to do uh, in the talk. Um, so my aim uh, uh, is first to examine whether ordinary competence with logical rules is adequately articulated in terms of Rylean knowing how in light of Carroll's regress and I'm going to argue that while uh, uh, it might be fit to articulate ordinary logical competence, Rylean knowing how does not in fact help solve Carroll's regress the way Ryle understands the regress. Um, and what I'm going to do is offer an alternative account, still Ryan in spirit, which serves both aims better the aim of articulating ordinary logical competence and the aim of uh, solving Carl's regress. Okay, so the plan is this this talk is a kind of two part talk. Uh, in the first part, I introduce general elements of Ryan's account of knowing how as they apply to the specific case of logical knowledge and deductive reasoning. Uh, And I also present uh, Carl's regress. And in the second part, this is the critical part, I argue that while Ryle's conception of knowing how might provide a good basis for an account of ordinary logical competence, it in fact offers no quick way to solve Carl's regress. Uh, And I'll offer a way of uh, solving it. Okay, Uh, before I start, uh, just two quick caveats. so, in this talk, I'm going to remain neutral on the current intellect, intellectualist and anti intellectualist debates. Um, so, those debates, you know, in large part brought about by Stanley and Williamson's 2001 paper entitled Knowing How. Um, and in this paper, they argue against Ryle and Ryle and anti what they call Ryle and in general, uh, for the view that knowledge how is a species of knowledge that. So I'm not going to go into those debates and uh, I'm not going to take a stand on um, who is right in those debates. Um, but I am going to rely on contemporary discussions of knowing how and especially of the notion of a scale, which is absolutely central to rise account and really central also to contemporary discussions of knowing how. But it's noteworthy that one Upshot of my discussion is that Ryan anti intellectualism is no better place than anti- intellectualism to solve Kara's regress. And this might be a surprise, uh, this might surprise at least some epistemologists of logic who might have thought that intellectualism uh, was as, at a disadvantage when it came to the regress. Um, The second caveat is that I'm only going to be concerned with cases of knowing how, uh, the case of knowing how to reason logically, which as I said, uh, is central to right. but despite being so, uh, is somewhat neglected in mainstream discussions of knowing how. Um, The board of the examples that people typically consider uh, uh, have to do with, physical actions such as uh, uh, riding bicycles, baking cakes, driving cars, uh, playing all sorts of musical instruments, Um, but not so much with uh, mental or intellectual uh, actions uh, such as uh, the action uh, of reasoning. Um, So I'm going to really focus uh, on uh, uh, the logical case and what I'm going to say, you know, I, I don't, aim at any kind of generality. So I'm not trying to offer a general account of knowing how I'm really trying to understand how we should understand uh, the case of um, how we should account for the case of uh, knowing how to reason logically. Okay. So uh, part one, uh, run on knowing how to reason logically and Carol's regress. Okay. So this is very much give you the sort of key bits of uh, Ryle's account to uh, uh, help understand what's going on when it comes to uh, his views on knowing how to reason logically. Okay, so Ryle opposes what he calls the uh, prevailing doctrine or the intellectualist legend of what he calls intelligent action. And for him an intelligent action is one for which what he calls intelligence predicates can be applied, such as intelligent, clever, stupid, attentive, wise, unwise, logical, illogical, sensible, silly. So it's all the kind of actions where some kind of intelligence predicates uh, would be fit to be uh, applied. And the list is quite open-ended. Okay. Um, so uh, according to the prevailing doctrine, Uh, to count as intelligent, an action has to be preceded by an act of thinking, where thinking is construed as considering regulative propositions. So what might these propositions be? And Ryle doesn't really give examples. uh, You know, there are propositions that regulate behavior, or normative propositions, and uh, that tell you what to do or how you uh, should act. Um, So let me just give you a quote on what uh, uh, Rive right, says about intelligent, uh, 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 how the prevailing doctrine uh, accounts for intelligent action. So um, the prevailing doctrine holds, first, that intelligence is a special faculty, the exercises of which are those specific internal acts, which are called acts of thinking, namely the operations of considering propositions. And second, that practical activities merit their titles intelligent or clever, and the rest, only because they are accompanied by some such internal act of considering propositions, and particularly regulative propositions okay um, so as i've said uh, before deductive uh, or logical reasoning is a canonical example uh, of intelligent action for ryan so how uh might we apply the prevailing doctrine to uh um such uh, reasoning so consider uh, a very simple example which is uh the example of reasoning which is also on your handout um which runs as follows from the belief that it is raining, and that if it is raining, then the streets are wet. you reason to believe that the streets are wet. Okay, so reasoning follows the rule of uh, modus ponens. Um, And so if you were to think of how the rule of modus ponens looks like uh, articulated as a regulative proposition, the sort of proposition that Ryle has in mind, maybe you would state it uh, as follows as a kind of directive. So this is regulative on your handout. Um, so uh, if you accept both P and if P then Q, then you ought to reason to Q. Again, this is just uh, a suggestion. Uh, this is not a final a characterization of what, you know, uh, such a kind of provision might look like, but this is to, you know, help us having uh, an example. Okay. So uh, if you apply the prevailing doctrine to uh, reasoning, then you have uh, uh, this sort of uh, accounts. So um, of how, you know, you reach your conclusion. So given your initial beliefs to reach your conclusion that the streets are wet, you first perform uh, the action of considering regulative and then apply it uh, to, in your reasoning. So you have your premises, you think about, oh, which, does, which proposition does apply? You come up with regulative and then you apply it to reach your conclusion. And uh, on that uh, account, such considering explains why reasoning counts, uh, the, the example in reasoning counts as an example of an intelligent uh, action. Okay, so that's roughly how such an account would go. Um, um, Ryle thinks that this account does not work, uh, and that's where Caro's regress uh, becomes relevant. Um, So, um, in contrast with the prevailing doctrine, uh, Ryle thinks that intelligence is directly exercised in action of reasoning. So it doesn't uh, uh, require a shadow act of or what he calls a shadow act of contemplating a regulative propositions, uh, or no go-between process which would be required for manifesting uh, knowledge uh, in action. As he puts it, and I've put a quote on the handout: "There is no gap between intelligence and practice, corresponding to the familiar gap between theory and practice." It's not that in reasoning you put your theory into a kind of action or practice. Um, and the thing is that there has to be for a direct exercise of intelligence in reasoning such that there is no room for thinking or no gap for contemplating a propositions such as regulative on pain of falling foul of Karo's regress, which it takes the uh, prevailing doctrine to be uh, susceptible to. Okay, so let's talk about Carol's regress uh, in more detail. So, sorry, this is a very busy slide, but uh, I tried to make it fit on a single slide, but you also have it uh, on the handout. So what you have here is not um, Carol's regress as he states it. And it's not quite as regress as he states it. It's a sort of condensed version of the two. So it, it, uh, to uh, show you how the way uh, Ryle thinks about the regress, how the regress works. So it's, uh, but it, it would just take us too much time to present the current regress and then explain how Ryd's interpreted, it, etc., etc. But I'm happy to go into that if, if you're interested in discussion. So this is a, a reconstruction. Okay, here goes. Suppose that you believe both that it is raining and that if it is raining, the streets are wet. And then suppose also that, in order to successfully perform the intelligent action of drawing the conclusion that the streets are wet from these premises, you first had to consider regulative, so the regulative proposition concerning uh, modis ponens, and apply this proposition to these premises. According to uh, Carroll and Ryle, this would bring you no closer to action. Considering regulative cannot directly issue in your drawing the conclusion. As one puts it, there's a gap between that consideration and the practical application of the regulation. What to do um, to fill that gap? Um, In Car's request, it is suggested that you uh, consider further and further propositions along the lines of regulative as an attempt to bridge that gap. So an example would be a regulative two, um, uh, which uh, runs as follow: uh, If you accept both P and if P then Q, that is, if you accept your premises and you also accept uh, regulative, then you ought to reason to Q. So uh, it's, if if, you know, if regulative was not enough, just you know the, pres- the principle that tells you. To to go from premises to conclusion, maybe the, 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 the principle that tells you that to go from the premises to the conclusion, plus you know the principle that underlies uh, this might bring you closer to uh, action. However, so the argument goes, considering regulative two puts you no closer to action than considering regulative did, no closer to closing that gap between knowledge and action. And so considering further such principles, as is suggested in Karen's original statement of the regress only leads to a regress. We'll just consider further and further such propositions. Okay. So the thought here is that uh, considering propositions b- brings you no closer to action and Ryle by appealing to knowing how aims to explain how to bridge the gap between uh, knowledge and action. So let's uh, talk a bit about how things, how uh, Ryle thinks of uh, knowing how. Okay, so in general, Ryle knowing how is knowledge of methods, ways, rules, criteria, maxims, precepts, or imperative, imperative. Sorry, and these are not propositions. Okay, so when you know uh, how to do something, you know a method or way or rule or maxim, something like that. Um, and of uh, uh, reasoning, in particular, Ryle says, uh, and that's um, a quote that is also on your handout. Um, The intelligent reasoner is knowing rules of inference whenever he reasons intelligently, but knowing such a rule is not a case of knowing an extra fact or truth, it is knowing how to move from acknowledging some facts to acknowledging others. Knowing a rule of inference is being able to perform an intelligent operation. In general, there are sort of two features that uh, are important to uh, Raoul's account uh, of uh, knowing how here. First, it is uh, knowing a rule and and knowing a rule is knowing an imperative. So again, uh, Raoul doesn't uh, give uh, examples here, but uh, if you were to uh, think of an example that sort of uh, fits modus ponens, uh, then you might uh, come up with the imperative that you also have uh, on your handout. Um, If you accept both P and if P then Q, then reason to Q. So that could be uh, modus ponens imperative. And so knowing modus ponens uh, 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 would be, um, or knowing how to reason according to modus ponens would be knowing this imperative. But also, as we see from the quote, knowing a rule is an ability, indeed a disposition to reason in certain ways. Uh, So, uh, this knowledge uh, of the imperative is really a disposition to reason to Q. Once you have accepted P and if P then Q. And having disposition, this, this disposition is what moves the reasoner seamlessly or without gap from premises to conclusion. So, you know, you have, you accept your premises and then your disposition to reason just kicks in and you seamlessly accept the conclusion and so such a disposition is key to solving courage regress. It just bridges that, cap, that gap that, um, uh, uh, we, that you know, uh, uh, we saw in, uh, occurred in the, in the case of the uh, prevailing doctrine. Um, and I suspect that this very future is precisely uh, what makes R right and knowing how so attractive to epistemologists of logic, because it, it offers a straight, it seems to offer a straightforward way of solving courage regress. You know, you, it's just that the disposition gets activated when, once you have accepted premises. There is no thinking, there is no further, you know, reasoning that is going on there. You just draw the conclusion. All right. So this is for courage regress. Now I want to draw your attention to one last, very important uh, aspect of uh, knowledge how, uh, which is that uh, knowledge how is a uh, skill. Um, so, going to write uh, knowledge, how is the knowledge of a rule, and that is construed as having a skill, okay. So, uh, there are two important features that uh, uh, are important to write um, concerning the notion of a skill. First is that skills are acquired uh, through training, uh, so you have to you know, train yourself to acquire the skill uh, and, uh, you know, until uh, those skills might become uh, uh, second uh, natures. Um, so, just to take an example outside of logic, imagine that you know how to ride a bicycle. Well, you know, maybe you started as a toddler with a bike which had no pedals and then you had a bike that had pedals. Uh, but four wheels and then you move to a bike with two wheels, et cetera, et cetera. So you, 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 you learn how to ride your bike, a bicycle, you know, by practicing a lot, by trying and falling and trying again, by trying to think about your balance and all sorts of things. So, so And then eventually riding a bike because it becomes a second nature, you don't even think about it. So knowledge how is a kind of, you know, uh, knowledge that is acquired through training. Another feature of knowledge how um, is um, that uh, skills are multi-track or what Wright calls uh, higher graded dispositions. Uh, the exercise of the exercises of which are indefinitely heterogeneous. Uh, the application of skills uh, are very varied. Okay, and just to sort of uh, fix ideas a bit better here. Uh, Uh, Ryle contrasts uh, skills, the skills that constitute knowledge how, with other kind of human dispositions, uh, for instance, reflexes, uh, knee-jerk reactions, uh, physical dispositions, such as one's proneness to uh, headaches, and uh, what he calls habits, which is a rather large category for Ryle, and I'm not going to say much about it, but, but it's an interesting category, such as the tendency to talk loudly or being a smoker or the ability to recite the alphabet. These are his own examples. And the contrast is really drawn in the in, 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 in that um, while uh, uh, skills are multi-track dispositions, so the applications are very varied. Um, this is not the case for these other human dispositions uh, which uh, where one, as he puts it, one performance is a replica of its predecessor. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, once pulled as to headache always manifests itself uh, through a head, uh, headache and the tendency to talk loudly uh, through talking loudly, et etc. et cetera. Uh, so So uh, the contrast here is between is really these sort of complex dispositions and then uh, these sort of more simple dispositions where only one thing ever gets uh, manifested. And uh, I'm, um, I really want to emphasize this uh, uh, idea that that uh, uh, skills are, uh, in the exercise of skill is indefinitely heterogeneous because it's going to be important uh, later. But also this is something that has featured prominently in current debates over the nat- nature of knowing how. And indeed now uh, this literature has given rise to an independent literature uh, on skills themselves and their natures. Um, but part of the uh, one of the bones of contentions between intellectualists and anti-intellectualists is who can underwrite better the idea that skills are uh, indefinitely heterogeneous? Uh, a particular discussion has focused on what you know decided that you know uh, Part of having a skill is being able to apply the skill to novel situations. So, you know, if you think about Uh, knowing how to ski, you know, if you're a skier, maybe you can, you know, uh, ski on slopes you've never skied on before, or, you know, in conditions you've never experienced before, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So there is currently a debate over, you know, uh, um, how to best underwrite uh, this this, uh, feature of skills that they are indefinitely heterogeneous. And indeed, in those debates, it very much acts as a requirement that an account of knowing how has to underwrite such indefinite heterogeneity in the application of skill. Okay, Um, and again, that would be important for later. So now we can get a a sort of picture of, you know, what uh, an ordinary intelligent reasoner might be, uh, someone who has this relevant skill. So that reasoner, she would have the skill to reason logically. Maybe she tends to avoid fallacies, she tends to remain consistent, et cetera. She's responsive to evidence. Obviously, this is very much a matter of degree, how good your skill is. Uh, and she's not in this way as a result of luck or habit, but because she has become through training reliable in her application of a rule in action. Uh, and so she can use her skill in, in many contexts, for many different purposes and in reasoning situations that she had, has not yet encountered before. Okay, so that's for my uh, picture of uh, ride on knowing how, it has two features, one feature t- it, which has to do with addressing Carl's regress, and this uh, other feature that has to do uh, with the notion of a scale. And uh, what I'm going to do uh, in part two is uh, problematize these two features. So part two is Ryle and knowing how to reason logically and ordinary reasoning. Okay, so, um, What I think is that uh, Ryle imposes inconsistent requirements on knowing how to to reason logically. There's one requirement that comes from Carroll's regress, and that's one on your handout. Um, We are now on page two of the handout. Um, And uh, you can put it as follows. Um, Knowing how to reason logically is such that there is no gap, no go between mental activity of considering the relevant rule between accepting the premises and drawing the conclusion. And then there's a requirement from skill that I've just talked about, uh, uh, which runs as follows, knowing how the skill whose manifestation into intelligent action is indefinitely heterogeneous. And my argument is going to be as follows. Uh, I I think that uh, these two requirements are inconsistent requirements uh, I'm going to argue that we should hold on to the second uh, requirement uh, concerning the nature of scale. And so it better be the case that we don't need uh, something like uh, the first requirement in order to meet the challenge posed by Carol's regress. Okay. Uh, it might be useful to reframe this inconsistent requirement as uh, follows. Um, So you might say that the first one that to do with courage regress uh, fits more with the idea of a competence one might have for inferring according to a logical rule. And indeed to go back to a quote that uh, I gave you uh, before uh, in the context uh, of uh, courage regress, Wright says that knowing such a rule is knowing how to move from acknowledging some facts to acknowledging others. Um, So if if that's the kind of competence you have, this is very much a competence for inference, you know, like where that's a mental action of going from premises you recognize to be true to the recognition of the truth of the conclusion that uh, follows from them, and that's just the capacity to do that thing, just inferring from truth to truth. Whereas the second requirement that comes from the idea of a skill um, fits rather a a different kind of competence, uh, which, you know, fits better the idea of reasoning and we might sort of uh, call it a competence for using a logical rule in uh, reasoning Uh, and it might, you know, uh, you might think that it has to do with a lot more or many more kinds of uh, activities than uh, inferring according to a logical rule, uh, so it might, you know, relate to the varied and open-ended application of a skill for different reasoning purposes or activities, that might consist of going from acknowledged truths to acknowledged truths, but might also involve other mental states, suppositions, falsehoods, credences, and, um, m- you know, might also involve manifestations that are different from simply inferring uh, a conclusion. Okay, so I think the tension uh, between requirement uh, uh, one and two is really a tension between two visions of, you know, uh, reasoning logically or knowledge of a rule amounts to, okay, um, and uh, um, and so you know, which one is right, that, that's sort of uh, the issue. Um, so now I'm going to take a closer look uh, to the second requirement, um, and uh, I want to get clearer about what the skill to reason logically would have to look like or the relevant disposition uh, would have to look like so has to underwrite this idea of uh, an open-ended uh, application. Okay. Um, so one of the many only reasoning situations uh, in which knowledge of a rule such as modus ponens is deployed is illustrated by reason changing view. So reason, cases of reason change in view have, have been made uh famous by Gilbert Harman in his 1986 book, Change in View, where he uses these cases not at all for the kind of purpose I'm interested in today because he, he uses um, uh uh these examples to argue that we should be skeptical about the idea that we at all uh, know a logic. But um uh that's uh, his, his thing. Uh, what I want to uh, uh, use uh, uh, such cases for today is more to try to understand better uh, how we might articulate uh, uh, the kind of skill uh, uh, to reason logically. So I'm going to use an example uh, of uh, reasoning. Uh, I call it ironing. Uh, let's read it. It's on your handout. Suppose that you are doing your ironing with the radio on in the background. Very absorbed in your task, you pay no attention to the radio and lose track of time. Suddenly you look at your watch and come to believe that it has just gone 6pm. You realize that if it has just gone 6pm, then the news is on. You pay attention to the radio and hear that it is not the news at all, but already the program that follows it. Being a rational agent, you do not conclude that the news is on. And given that you are listening to the BBC, you have more reasons to think that your watch has stopped than that they have changed their program. So you reject your initial belief that it has just gone 6 p.m. Okay. So intuitively here, as an intelligent reasoner, you exploit your knowledge of modus ponens to revise your initial views, rather than reason to what these views logically entail by modus ponens. You see the entailment, what you're committed to believing, uh, given uh, uh, your initial beliefs. And that uh, enables you to revise, that enables you to give up one of those uh, beliefs. So what uh, I want to do is use ironing as an adequacy condition for an account of knowing how to reason logically. Uh, And here's why I think uh, it's a good adequacy condition. Only intelligent reasoners can revise their views. This is something we do uh, as a matter of course. So this is a phenomenon we should account for. Ironing in particular involves manifestation of knowledge of modest ponens. So an account of the relevant skill uh, should underwrite that such knowledge is manifested. That is to say, um, ironing illustrates one kind of independently heterogeneous manifestation of the relevant skill in action, as specified in requirement two. That is to say, well, uh, in other words, knowledge of what is pronent is exercised both in reasoning, which is on the initial scenario where someone just draws a conclusion, and this is the scenario Carl rigorous asks us to account for, to explain how it might happen. Um, but it is also exercised uh, in a case such as ironing when one uh, revises their views. So I take it that an account of skill, uh, the skill to reason uh, according uh, to correspondence should underwrite both applications okay, of the knowledge. Okay, so this is why I think uh, 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 it can act as an adequacy condition. So, um, Let's go back to uh, um, our first proposal we had on the table, our first Ryan proposal we had on the table, which is uh, the uh, imperative uh, that we uh, uh, use to articulate uh, uh, the rule uh, that uh, might uh, be known by someone who knows uh, how to reason according to respondents. Okay, so uh, if you accept both P and if P, then Q, reason to Q. Um, so, it should be obvious that knowledge of this imperative does not help um, explain uh, how knowledge of modus ponens is manifested in ironing. Um, such knowledge is manifested only when, having accepted your premises, you accept your conclusion. It fits better the notion of inferring according to modus ponens, which I talked about in connection with requirement one, than the notion of uh, using modus ponens in your uh, reasoning. Okay, Um, but um, obviously the point of ironing is that you don't just draw the conclusion um, and you revise instead. So uh, we need to find uh, something else uh, to uh, uh, start our articulation of the relevant scale. Okay, so we, we need a new imperative or something like that. Um, Okay, so when people discuss these cases uh, of reason changing, if you're not, not in a right and context, but in general, that widely discussed uh, in the philosophy of logic, um, they always say that they favor, uh, I mean, they're not always, but many people think that they, they favor uh, so-called wide scope uh, principles. So recall, um, regulative, uh, which said that, um, if you accept P and if P then Q, then you ought to reason to Q, okay. So this is a narrow scope uh, principle of reasoning in that uh, the operator ought uh, has a narrow scope uh, and the conditional uh, if uh, you accept P and if P then Q uh, then has the wide uh, scope, okay. So uh, what this uh Principle tells you that you can only do one thing, uh, you know, uh, once you have accepted your premises, you just ought two reach to conclusion. If you go for a wide scope principle, what you do is you move out, you move the art out of the conditional, um, and uh, then the art has wide scope over the conditional, and you have a principle uh, roughly like regulative wide uh, on your handout. Again, this is really an approximation where well, you say, well, S ought to be such that if S accepts P and if P then Q, uh, S reasons to Q. So what you, uh, the way you ought to be to satisfy the principle is to be, uh, in the situation that if you accept P and if you did reason to Q. But obviously, that is compatible with you not reasoning to and not accepting one of your uh, premises. That is to say, a regulative wide is compatible with there being various ways of manifesting knowledge of modus ponens, depending on the attitude taken to your premises and conclusion. So you might think this is the kind of principle we, we need to uh, uh, account for uh, reason changing view cases such as ironing. Okay, so we could uh, perhaps uh, try to use regulative wide as a model to amend or imperative uh, and articulate the relevant scheme. Um, So there is no straightforward way of articulating the wide narrow scope distinction if we start with imperatives such as uh, or imperative. So uh, what we need to do is uh, capture such with the, the, the idea of wide scope, uh, using subrule. So uh, this is my proposal, that's imperative one, imperative two, imperative three. So they cover the, you know, uh, different possible cases that might happen. Uh, so you, the cases where you accept the premises and then also reason to conclusion. And then the cases uh, where, because you reject one of the premises, you do not resent to, the, to your conclusion. Uh, so that might help us in the case of ironing. Um, and if you were to articulate this um, as a kind of disposition, as a kind of skill uh, to reason according to modisponens, you might uh, have something such as skill uh, on your handout. Um, again, so that's just a translation of the imperative uh, using the language of disposition. So just you know, uh, you'd have a skill to reason according to modisponens, which consists of you know. Say three disposition, the disposition to reason for, to Q from accepting P and if P then Q, the disposition to re, not reason to Q from rejecting P and accepting if, if P then Q, and uh, the same uh, with rejecting to the uh, other premise. So, does that help uh, with ironing? Uh, so, let's see. So, in ironing, you start with the belief uh, that P, uh, that it is 6 p.m., and if P then Q, that if it is 6 p.m., then the news is on. Then skill one, the first disposition uh, uh, of a complex disposition uh, kicks it and you reason to queue. That's the appropriate manifestation at this stage. Uh, So you do actually reason to uh, the view that the news is on. This is the required manifestation. But so, you know, Again, this is not uh, what happens in irony. This is not a good description of the case because in irony, you do not uh, reason to the conclusion. So it seems that this strategy here uh, does not help. So skill suffers uh, the same problem as imperative uh, or starting point simply because of the presence of skill one, this first disposition, which basically is the dispositional version or imperative. And so once you believe that P and that if and q, there's only one way to go, uh, you have to go to Q. Um, so this way of mimicking the wide scope re, uh, uh, version of regulative uh, does not uh, help. And indeed, uh, I don't really know how thinking about wide scope principles further is going to help here. Maybe we need another uh, strategy. So what I think is needed is this, uh, we need a kind of disposition or kind of skill that you can manifest while not immediately reason to Q once you have accepted P and if P then Q. So we need a, the, the manifestation to stop short of accepting Q. Uh, so, and, and then you know, uh, uh, we can be on the path where we revise rather than accept the conclusion, okay. So um, I'm going to run through two proposals as to how to do this. Uh, the first one is in terms of uh, pro attitudes, uh, and that's also on your handout. So it would be just to uh, think in terms of a disposition to form a pro attitude towards reasoning to Q once you have accepted uh, both the premises, of, in our case both P and P and Q. And so the feature, the key feature of pro-attitude is that it does not require manifestation in terms of reasoning uh, to Q. So if you run this through ironing, um, it goes as follows. You start with accepting P and P and Q that um, uh, your premises, then pro-attitude kicks in. Uh, You form a pro-attitude towards reasoning to Q Uh, that the news is on, uh, and while you also come to uh, accept uh, not uh, cue, because you have evidence that the news is not on, you cease to have this uh, pro attitude, and uh, eventually you reject your initial view that um, uh, it is uh, just past six o'clock. Okay, Um, so that, that seems to, I mean, this is very rough as a proposal, but that seems to be in the right ballpark in the in the sense that it is a disposition to do something, which is you know uh, not reasoning to a conclusion. Um, the problem here is that it's not always clear why we should form a pro attitude uh, towards accepting a conclusion, especially in our case, because you know I have concurrent evidence that. Uh, uh, my conclusion is false. so you know i'm I'm considering uh, uh, reasoning to uh, the view that uh, the news is on, but I do have at the same time evidence that the news is not on so it's not clear why you should you know feel any impulse towards uh, uh, that conclusion um, so it's seems that you know the evidence that the proposition that you are contemplating uh uh, uh, reasoning to is false should be a kind of pro-attitude killer or something like that. Um, so it's, it's just not true in general that whenever you accept both P and if P then Q, you should form a pro-attitude towards reasoning to Q. Uh, whether you should is sensitive to the context and the content of the beliefs that figure in the reasoning. So uh, let me quickly run you through the proposal which I like, uh, <clears throat> and that's not my proposal. It's a proposal uh, offered by Julia Murzy and Florian Steinberger in their paper is logical knowledge dispositional. And they uh, offer that kind of uh, disp- articulation of the relevant disposition, uh, disp- the disposition to consider reasoning to Q from accepting both that P and if P then Q. Uh, so it's weaker disposition even than pro-attitude. And so if you again run this through ironing, it goes like this, um, you accept that P that's just past 6 p.m. and that if it's just past 6 p.m. then the news is on. Then consider kicks in, um, you consider reasoning to Q to the view that the news is on, but you know, you also come to accept not Q that the news is not, not on and so that leads you to reject uh, P. So it seems to me that consider makes good sense of the fact that one can exercise knowledge of what is ponens, for instance, without reasoning to uh, the relevant conclusion Q in, indeed, without even forming a pro attitude towards reasoning to Q. Um, and it fits the intuition on which uh, cases uh, of change in view rely that one can see the commitments of one's beliefs without at all endorsing those commitments, but, you know, uh, rather sort of uh, reject um, uh, the initial beliefs. Okay. So um, we have arrived at consider. Um, this is so the way we got there is because uh, I use this uh, example of changing view, ironing running as an adequacy condition on an account of knowing how to reason uh, logically I take it that ironing illustrates one kind of indefinitely heterogeneous manifestation of the relevant skill in action as specified in requirement two. Um, and uh, so far as only uh, changing view goes, it seems that consider is in the right ballpark. So it seems to be that the Ryland should go for consider as part of their account of knowing how to use what his is reasoning as part of their account of the only intelligent uh, reasoners' uh, knowledge. Um, Of course, this is a very partial uh, characterization because the final account of this knowledge will be more complex because it will have to factor in other mental states than belief or acceptance, such as suppositions and credences and other things that one might do rather than draw a conclusion or reject a premise such as uh, suspend judgment. So uh, this is really, the tip of the iceberg. Um, but I think that uh, ironing is enough to show the tension between uh, requirements uh, one and two. Um, so let me now go back to requirement one. Um, so requirement was, was had to do with Ryan's way of avoiding current regress. Uh, according to it, knowing how to reason logically, is such that there is no gap or no go-between mental activity of considering the relevant rule between accepting the premises and drawing the conclusion. Now, the problem is that consider obviously does not meet requirement one, uh, to directly without any kind of go-between process take you to a given conclusion once you have accepted the relevant premises. It only takes you directly to consider that conclusion. So to take you to accepting the conclusion uh, from considering the conclusion, something something else has to be uh, factored in. So you may as well call that a a kind of go-between process, exactly the kind of process that Ryan didn't want to have uh, in his account. Uh, That was a feature of the prevailing doctrine. So what seems to be, uh, going on here is that, uh, just like uh, right prevailing doctrine, an account of how to reason logically that uh, meets requirement two, um, has to explain how reasoning from premises to conclusion can occur. So it has to explain how we do actually draw conclusions address current regress while acknowledging some gap between manifesting knowledge and actually reasoning to conclusion. Both views, right, than knowing how oh, the way I understand it, and um, uh, the uh, prevailing doctrine require further mental state processes to play some kind of role in explaining the issuing of the action or drawing a conclusion. So, overall, they are in similar positions um, in explaining how reasoning to a conclusion on the basis of one's knowledge might, in fact, uh, occur. And this is to say that in principle, right? And anti intellectualism uh, is no better place than intellectualism, those who think that uh, knowledge has a kind of proposition knowledge to solve Carol's regress in principle because both will have to appeal to something that goes between knowledge and action to explain how um, uh, the action can at all uh, occur. Um Okay, so what you know so both uh, views need an account of you know what might go between knowledge and action. Uh, obviously the, you know what goes uh, better not be the consideration of a rule, even if it's an imperative of a, or a regulative proposition.. Uh, so it cannot go through the explicit uh, 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 consideration uh, uh, that leads us to Carol's regress. So it has to uh, be some ka- other kind of uh, thing. Um, and here, I'm just going to very, very quickly because uh, I want to draw this to close, uh, sketch one account that I like, that I think does justice uh, to what um, uh, might go between uh, knowledge and action in a way that. That fits nicely uh, the sort of cases I'd be interested in through through, um, ironing. Okay, so uh, the card is offered by uh, Ellen Friedland in a great uh, paper. Uh, She's mostly uh, interested in the notion of a skill and and understanding really what a skill amounts to. Um, And she offers the sort of following kind of account. So according to her, an intelligent action is a controlled action where exercising control is partly a voluntary cognitive process. And in particular, manifestation of a skill requires strategic control, what you call strategic control. Uh, and strategic control has to do with the goals or plans and strategies that you use as a guide for how you manifest skill in various contexts and situations uh, and so this is this kind of control is naturally thought of as voluntary that is non automatic and accessible to the personal level and susceptible to uh, deliberative process. And she contrasts that kind of control uh, with two other kinds of control that are required for proper exercise of skill uh, that are uh, uh, more automatic. Uh, then strategic control one has to do with attending to the relevant features of the context um, given uh, uh, one's goals and plans and the uh, other has to do with automatized motor routines uh, acquired through practice so to to put it more concretely suppose you know take the, the, the example of skiing again um so uh you know you have uh a certain, you might have a certain goal when you uh, uh, exercise uh, your knowledge of how to ski, you know, maybe you want to race your brother, as I did a lot, or maybe you just want to go down the slope gently with your grandmother, as I did a lot too. Uh, maybe, you know, you want to do it in a certain style, uh, slalom style, or, you know, different kinds of style. So there are all sorts of, you know, things, ways in which you might decide to exercise your skill. That are under your control, and then obviously that you know that is to properly exercise the skill. You'll be you'll have to be attending to relevant features as well. You know the the circumstances, the weather, uh, people around you, uh, maybe the quality of the snow, and also you know you have to, to put into action you know these things that you have uh, acquired through uh, uh, you know uh, routine practice, such as you know sort of. Uh, Activate your muscles in certain ways, and you know, turn in certain ways, and and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so um, that's how sort of she thinks of uh, 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 what goes between knowledge and action. These sort of uh, uh, exercises of uh, control, and in particular, strategy control. And I think that this idea of uh, strategy control is quite apt in the case of. Uh, Reason change in view, because after all it is reason, so it seems to be a kind of example of, you know, personal uh, available to consciousness deliberation that has to do with one's uh, goals uh, and plans. Uh, So consider ironing one last time. Um, So to consider the possibility that the news is on, but reject it in light of evidence that it is false, requires you to have strategic control over how you exercise your skill. With modus, regarding modus ponens, that has to do uh, with your goals and your plans. Um, so, for instance, you know, in ironing, uh, your goals might have to do with not, you know, billing falsely that the news is on, uh, or to, you know, try to get the right view uh, concerning what's going on uh, with your watch and the BBC. Try to sort of get the right view of the situation. In general, we might think that uh, when we engage in reasoning activities, um, or plans uh, and goals uh, have to do with, you know, maybe some uh, epistemic goods about truth, knowledge, or justification. Uh, maybe sometimes it, uh, they have to do with practical uh, interests of, uh, you know, doing the right thing or, you know, be somewhere on time. Um, or, you know, they might just have to do with sort of more instrumental things, so that, you know. Um, uh uh various plans uh, uh we might we might uh have uh and we use reasoning as a way to get to these uh to implement those plans. So it seems that um once we integrate this idea that w- why do we reason well it's because we have certain interests and goals, then there is no mystery as to why we are able to reach conclusions from premises. So to conclude briefly um here is my sort of, and, and I'm sorry that it was quite sketchy, uh, the, uh, the this last bit on, on skills. Uh, here is my uh, new Ryland take on courage regress. Uh, what makes you draw the conclusion uh, from the premises in a scenario such as uh, reasoning is that you possess a skill partially specified in terms of consider. You have strategic control over how you manifest your skill. Um, in the specific case of reasoning, you manifest your skill by reasoning to uh, the conclusion in light of your goals and plans. So it's because you, you know, you are interested in the conclusion, or uh, uh, you want to know something about um, uh, whether the, you know, uh, the, street, the streets are wet or not. That you draw the conclusion, and these goals and plans constitute the go-between mental processes or states that stand between knowledge heart, and. Uh, action. And so I think we can diffuse the threat of Carl's regress without endorsing requirement uh, one by uh, appealing to this kind of picture. Now I said at the beginning that many epistemologists of logic are attracted to the idea that logical knowledge is at least in part knowing how. And I suspect that part of the attraction, a large part of the attraction, uh, has to do with meeting requirement one uh, as a way of avoiding Carl's regress. So these uh, pieces of logic might not find the current proposal uh, congenial, but I think they should. Um, so it, it doesn't offer the kind of straightforward way of solving courage regress, but I think they should. Um, if they not just want to uh, solve courage regress, but they also want to explain uh, what only intelligent uh, reasoners do in their ordinary reasoning activities, which is you know, what knowing how uh, is really uh, about. Uh, Thank you very much for your attention.